Okay, we are in Revelation chapter 1, so if you have your Bible, I would love for you to turn there as we continue talking about Jesus would like a word with us as his church, with us as his people. And I would say as we look at Revelation, Revelation is always thought of as prophecy. It is the, probably the most extensive book about prophecy that there is in Scripture, and so rightly so, it is associated with, pro, uh, with prophecy. I would say that in order to understand prophecy, in order to appreciate it, in order to even want to look at it, you have to be a little bit of a nerd. So I'm going to do a nerd check with us this morning. All right, all you self-identifying nerds, you can like, you can stand with me, all right? Uh, there is a movie that came out a little while ago, like a few decades ago, called The Princess Bride. Anybody seen The Princess Bride? All right, good. Nerds, nerds unite. Here we go. All right, all of you who haven't, this is your homework this week. You got to watch it, okay? I'm sure it's out there somewhere. You can grab it. So let's check to see if you really did watch it. Uh, the story is about a girl named Buttercup. Good. Right, there we go. A girl named Buttercup and a guy named Wesley. Okay. So the, this, this romantic pairing in this very silly comedy um, begins with Wesley being Buttercup's servant and her not realizing that he loves her. She just thinks he's a servant, and she misses it. As, as the story begins, she doesn't understand until one day the lights go on, and she recognizes that every time he says a phrase, which is, as you wish, that means, I love you, right? And I'm devoted to you. And when that light goes on, everything changes for them. Their whole relationship changes. The whole dynamic changes because now they are in true love, right? The difference... It wasn't the difference between him loving her or not loving her. The difference between her was between her seeing it or not seeing it, right? Later on in the movie, the whole movie is a lot about seeing or not seeing. It's about whether the enemies see what's going on. Anyway, but later on in the movie, she's been captured and this pirate comes after her and eventually uh, rescues her or takes her from her captives. And she thinks that that pirate has killed her Wesley. And so she is antagonistic towards this, this pirate. She, she like curses at him and, and is angry with him and eventually shoves him down a hill. And only as he's falling down the hill does she realize that this is, in fact, Wesley. And as soon as she knows, as soon as she understands that it's Wesley, what does she do? She throws herself down the hill after him because true love, right? But here's my point. As I think about that story, we, we, it's a silly whole thing, and I understand that, but the, the reason that it works in part is because it says something in, in reality that we understand. And one of the things that it says is this. When you miss seeing someone, when you cannot see someone who loves you, you miss out on a lot in life, Right? Like it was right there in front of her. One time she thought uh, it was just a nobody. He, uh, he, their relationship didn't really mean anything. She just took him for granted. He was just there kind of like around her, but she didn't really get it. And then when she saw it, everything was different when she saw that he... And then the other time she thought he was her enemy until she realized that he wasn't her enemy. He was there to actually save her, right? Seeing makes all the difference. Seeing who the person is and seeing how they love you makes all the difference, Right? Today, 
My whole goal with this morning is that we would see Jesus. Maybe as you've gone on in your Christian walk, you have taken him for granted. He's around in your life and he's walking around with you. And every now and then when things get bad, you cry out to him and you ask him for some help and you hope that he will help you or whatever. But you've stopped long ago seeing him for who he is. Maybe you've decided because life is hard or things have gone bad or maybe you don't even know him. You've decided he is someone to be defensive against. He is someone to push away. And you don't realize how much he loves you. And I'm telling you, when you see that, it changes everything, doesn't it? I'm just saying, as, as a church and as believers, we talk a lot about Jesus. Maybe it's easy to stop seeing him. Maybe it's easy to forget his love. Maybe it's easy to, to look over his glory and his greatness. So I want us, as we go through Revelation, to know him like God shows us him here in Revelation. This is God himself as the Son in power who restores and saves and heals and redeems. This is the very foundation of our hope. It is why we as people live hopeful. It's because of Jesus. There is no other reason that we gather and there is no other reason that we live as hopeful, confident people than Jesus. If he's a lie, this is all a lie, right? But if he is who he says he is, then there is hope for anything, isn't there? Because for us as human beings, what is broken is often unfixable, except for Jesus, right? The best we can hope for with shame or regret is to just forget and find a way to move on except with Jesus. These things in life that we can't do anything about, what a doctor tells you is impossible is often the best we can hope for, that what is possible is best we can hope for, except when Jesus chooses to heal someone. And we've seen that, haven't we? A lost person should probably always stay lost. A rebel should never soften and be transformed. Someone filled with doubt and fear should never find a way to life-giving faith except for Jesus who takes all of those impossible situations and regularly pours out his power in miracles, right? Have you seen that in your life? Never? Maybe we've stopped seeing Jesus and maybe we need to see him again. I think we act far too often like Jesus is a really nice mascot. Yay, go Jesus. But we've detached him from our reality. I think it is a great trap that has derailed churches and believers and even our culture to think that Jesus is just a you know, figment of our imagination. But here, the beginning of Revelation, John sees Jesus, and I hope that we do today as well. So start with me in Revelation. We're going to pick up at the intro to what we're talking about today in verse 8. And let's see, this. John is having a vision that God gives him about Jesus. God is talking to him. And in verse 8 it says this, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord, who is and who was and is to come, the, the Almighty. In just a few words, God gives us powerful truths about who he is. These three descriptions here that apply to God the Father and God the Son, and of course, God the Holy Spirit as well. Three different word pictures. 
So let's start with the first one. I am Alpha and Omega. So Alpha and Omega, you've probably heard that before. These are the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet, Alpha and Omega. I am the beginning and the end. We, we read that later on when it's coupled with Alpha and Omega, telling us what it means. I am the beginning and the end. In Hebrew, when they would talk about the, the first and last letters of the, of the Hebrew alphabet, Aleph and Tau, when they would talk about the first and last letters, it was meant to represent the entire alphabet. In other words, by talking about the first and the last, you were talking about the whole thing. So what what God says here when he says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, is he is not just I am the first and the last, but but I am everything. I am the all in all. I am the beginning of all things and I am the end of all things. I am the author of your beginning. And I am the author of your end. I am the author of your whole story. I am everything for you. This is Jesus. Everything about our lives forever will be determined by Jesus. He is the ruler over all. And so our lives are truly in his hands. And what that means for us, why that is important, is this. It means nothing happens in our lives beyond his control. That we are safe in Jesus. Now I want you to hold on to that because you're like, well, my life looks a mess. So if Jesus is in control, I'm not sure I can trust him. That's exactly the opposite of what that's supposed to do for you. And there's a reason why we think that way. But I want you to understand that this is a cause for real hope. That the path of our lives, this is the reason it's a cause for hope. The path of our lives is not determined by flawed people, by evil people, or by broken people. They may have things that that happen in my life because of their choices. I may have things in my life that happen because of my choice as a broken person. But ultimately, my life is not in my hands. It's in the hands of an author who knows the beginning from the end. Isn't that good? All right, you guys need some coffee here. I don't know if you know Jesus like I know Jesus. He is good. And the fact that my life is in his hands changes everything. You know what I'm saying? It says, who was and is and is to come. There was never a time and never will be a time without God. And we can get into eternality. We can get into theology here. An eternal God with no beginning and end, which if you stop and think about, we're going to talk about this on Wednesday a little bit. If you stop and think about that for like three minutes, he had no beginning. That just like, Okay, I'm done. I don't know what to do with that, right? So we're going to talk about who God is on Wednesday night, a little more theology, so you can come and join us for that. But how does the fact that he, is, he was and is and is to come, how does that change our lives? It means that when God promises to never leave us or forsake us, he can say that. Because he always was and he always will be. That God can be with us forever. And he is the eternal God who never leaves us. Third description is the Almighty. Seems pretty self-explanatory, but I want you to take a minute and think about this word. He is the Almighty. Nothing is too hard for him. His power, when I say Almighty and you think of however much power you can think of, he can do this. His power is more than that. 
No matter how much power you can imagine, God's power is more. That's crazy, right? It's why we can read in Ephesians chapter 3, God saying something like, Paul saying something like this in his prayer to God, that God is able to do more than we could ask or even imagine. And that's just not hyperbole like, yeah, God's really, really big. That's just a statement that is supposed to say to us, you haven't even started to understand how powerful your God is. He is the Alpha and Omega, the self-existent one, the one who will never leave us, and the Almighty. It may have, and, and for the first church here with John, this has very practical application that comes out of the resurrection of Jesus because it may have looked like man had power and man had won when Jesus hung on a cross and died, but the point of the resurrection was they have no power here because God is the Almighty. And so what they meant for evil, God used for good because God's power is that much greater to take even evil and wickedness and turn it on its head for eternal good. That's the God that we serve. How mighty is the Almighty? Maybe my better question for us today is, how mighty do you live like the Almighty is? When we worry and we fret about the things that come our way. So that's the initial statement. Then John kind of turns and he, he goes, God's going to reveal more to him and we're going to get to this vision of Jesus. But the first thing John does is give us a chance to know who he's talking to. So verse 9, it says this, I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the Isle of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day, I was in the Spirit, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, Write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. So we're going to see about these seven churches as we go through the rest of the fall here. But right here, I want us to take a little quick look at John. Gives us a little insight into him because I think it has some real application in our lives. So John says, I was, in the, I was there on a Sunday, first day of the week. That's the Lord's Day. That's what they called it in the early century, the Lord's Day, the first day of the week. And so I'm there and he, he mentions I'm on Patmos. We'll talk about a second what that means. And he's in the Spirit. I mean, somehow the Spirit came over him in a way where he's transport, transported spiritually beyond his physical confines. And this vision from God, this miraculous vision from God comes to John. But before we focus on the message he gets, before we even focus on the vision he gets, God gives us, or John gives us some words about his situation. I think it really is important to think about it. John is the last living apostle of Jesus. All the other ones have been put to death. Some right away, some later on. John is the last apostle that is alive. He is currently in prison, exiled on the Isle of Patmos. And when you were exiled in Rome, it meant some things. It meant that he had no possessions, he had nothing to his name, and he had a never-ending sentence. Here he is on the Isle of Patmos. 
Think about how the, this affects the first church. Think about what, they, what they're seeing. Let me give you a little context. This is, they're just starting to experience widespread persecution as a church. Now Nero, about 30 years before, had devastated the, the Christian community in Rome, in and around Rome. And it was awful. It was terrible. Christians up on posts, dipped in tar, lit for the, the lighting of the city. It was horrific. Fed to the lions and all this kind of stuff. That's where Peter and Paul were put to death. But now a new emperor has come named Domitian who decided that, that, that this persecution should reach every corner of the empire, that these Christians were parasites, that they were lowlifes, that they were a threat to the empire and they needed to be wiped out. And so he took someone like John for preaching the gospel, for refusing to declare Jesus, to, for refusing to declare Caesar as Lord because Jesus is Lord. He took John and he put him in prison. So if you're a church and persecution, and I'm not talking about persecution like people might not like you. I'm talking about persecution like people are ready to kill you. They're ready to come in your service while we're meeting here and walk in with guns and swords and put you to death for being here. I'm talking about persecution, right? What brings a person to a church service like that? Would you come? We're just talking about the power of the Almighty. We're just talking about one who would never leave us or forsake us, one who knows the end from the beginning. That's a whole different mindset than I think if we found out today that someone was going to come and maybe put us to death because we were here worshiping the name of Jesus, you would stay home. Because you know why? Today we don't trust in the Almighty purpose and power of God. We have bought into a mindset of protectionism of keep ourselves safe and keep our kids safe and hold on to what is ours and don't let anybody tread on me, that I fear we may have walked away from kingdom values and kingdom faith. The church is like, man, this could be the end. We're losing our last apostle. The emperor is using all of his force to wipe us out. Maybe this is the end of God's people. Maybe this is the collapse of the church. And it is in that moment that God shows up in John's prison cell and gives him a vision. I don't know if you get what that means, but I'm telling you right now, maybe you think your life is too twisted up or filled with trouble for Jesus to be the answer for you, for you to ever see him. Maybe the problems in your life have been the barrier between you and understanding who he is. Maybe you think that Jesus' power and his love and his great work is for those people who have their lives together, not for you. But what we see here, what we read here, is a reminder that we may romanticize what it means to be a Christian, but it pretty much is always pretty gritty and even sometimes very grim to be a Christian. And most of the time, that's when we see Jesus most clearly. Jesus has always been for the people in the lowest spots of life, for those who in the, are in the worst situations in the world. He's for the ones who are in the best situations too, but most often they're not looking for him. But he always comes down to meet us in our suffering, in our pain. And I'm asking you today, what if that's what it takes for you to see Jesus? We just sang to this morning, I'll follow you anywhere. Whatever it costs me, but don't make it too rough. 
Don't make it too hard or I'm going to doubt you. I'm going to doubt your goodness. I'm going to doubt your faithfulness. I'm going to be ready to throw in the towel. I'm going to be discouraged. I'm going to talk badly about you. I'm just going to get completely paralyzed and, and stuck in the moment. Don't ask me to actually live my faith out. See, first century church, here's John in prison and he might be the last apostle and the emperor said, I'm going to use all my power to wipe you out. And here comes Jesus. Okay, it's time for you to remember who you're serving. And notice what John says here. He says, I am your brother and your companion in, look at the words, the suffering and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are ours in Jesus. What's ours in Jesus? Suffering, uncertainty, pain, and because of that, patient endurance. And John's not talking theoretically. He has lost all civil rights, all property, and the sentence that he has has no end. He is banished forever to the Isle of Patmos. The only reason he gets off is because the Caesar that sentenced him there, Domitian, died. And when the Caesar died, John was allowed back. But I want you to also understand, he's only in prison because they couldn't kill him. Before he got to prison, they were trying to kill him by dunking him in boiling oil. Now, I'm just asking you, today, do we have this kind of faith? They took John and they said, John, you got to stop talking about Jesus. You got to stop telling people about Jesus. He said, I'm not going to do that. They said, okay, well, we're going to tie you up. We're going to get some oil that's boiling in a cauldron and we're going to dunk you in it so that you will die the most horrible death that we can make up. And he said, I'm still not going to do it. So they did it. So they did it. And he came out. They said, okay, he's not dead. Fine, you're banished. So now, not only did they try to kill him, they've taken his life away. He's about 90 years old out here on the Isle of Patmos. And Jesus isn't done with him yet. I'm wondering what would happen to Christianity today here if we had those kind of choices? Do we have a vision of Jesus that's strong enough? And maybe it's because we don't face suffering like this. Because John says, these are ours in Jesus. He's not saying forgiveness is ours. He's not saying life is ours. He's saying suffering is ours in Jesus. Who would ever sign up for that? Do you know why we would? Because the other thing he says is the kingdom is ours. This isn't our home. This isn't where our loyalty lies. This isn't our promise. We have a promise that we're living for and we're going to experience and what we get, go on, what goes on in our life right now can't change where we are going because we are already members of His kingdom. Because we are, God can take the worst that man can do and turn it into lasting, far-reaching good. And because we believe that, we patiently endure suffering. When you see Jesus, you patiently endure suffering. Not like, well, I can't wait till this is over, even though I can't. But Jesus must have a plan. Jesus must be ready to show me something about him that I couldn't see any other way. Jesus must want his love and goodness to shine out through me in a testimony. Jesus must want people to know more about him through my life. So I'm going to do this with confidence. 
Then we see this vision of Jesus. So in the middle of this kind of life, without warning, John is given a vision from God. And we think of this vision as the things to come, but it very much is a vision of Jesus. And as we read this, I want you to remember, John knows Jesus. He spent years walking around with him. But this view of Jesus is overwhelming to John because it's not the normal looking man that John had been with for for years as, as a disciple. It's not the regular-looking human being who hung on a cross, humiliated and tortured to death. death. This is Jesus in glory, Jesus in power, Jesus in majesty. And it's not meant to give us a physical description. Jesus looks like this. It's meant to give us a sense of who he is. Right? So as we read it, it's not a literal physical description. It's a description of who Jesus is, and we'll tell what these different symbols mean to us. So verse Uh, Verse 12 down to verse 16, it says this, And I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, and with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, white as snow, and his eyes were blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp, double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all of its brilliance. We'll pick up next week on John's reaction and Jesus' words to John to kind of get this whole thing in motion. But this vision of Jesus, who is Jesus? What are we supposed to know about Jesus? From this. First of all, he is given a, he's talked about as the Son of Man. The Son of Man. Now, you may not have studied theology a lot, but I'm going to tell you right now the Son of Man is a title Jesus used for himself a lot. And as I just read that, I would like to read from Daniel 7 where that title comes from. And I want you to notice the similarities between the description in Daniel 7 and what we just read in Revelation chapter 1. So Daniel chapter 7, verses 9 to 14, it says this, And as I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow. The hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire, and its wheels were all ablaze. A river was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands Upon thousands attended him. 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court was seated and the books were open. Then I continued to watch because of the boastful words the horn was speaking. I'm going to stop. No, I'm going to keep going. The boastful words the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. The other beasts had been stripped of their authority but were allowed to live for a period of time. In my vision at night, I looked and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Do you recognize the words? Sometimes people are like, well, Jesus himself said he was only human. I'm just the son of man. You don't understand 
When John says son of man, he's talking about when Jesus said son of man. When Jesus said son of man, he's talking about when Daniel said son of man. And when Daniel said son of man, he was talking about almighty God, the rescuer, redeemer, the judge of this world, the powerful savior. And he comes on the clouds and his hair is white like wool and he shines like the brightness of the heavens and has got fire all around him. And it's the same image we see in Revelation. This is the conquering king. If anyone ever tells you, well, Jesus just claimed to be a man because he called himself the Son of Man, you can take him to Daniel chapter 7. And if that doesn't convince them, then you can go to, John, to Mark chapter 14 when Jesus says, I am the Son of Man, and they are ready to kill him for blasphemy. Every Jewish person understood exactly what Jesus was saying when he said, I am the Son of Man. I am God Almighty coming on the clouds to judge this world. But then he says, He's dressed in a robe. And the word for robe is the word that is always used in the New Testament for a priestly robe. So the image here is Jesus as the judge, but Jesus also as the priest. And he's walking in the middle of these candlesticks, which represent the seven churches he's going to talk to. It shows Jesus as a priest ministering to each church, the great shepherd serving his people. The implication is that even as we meet together right now in the name of Jesus, Jesus is ministering to us. Jesus is close. He is near. He is here. Didn't he say that? Wherever two or more of you are gathered in my name, I am there in the middle of them. Jesus isn't far, far away. He's right here. Isn't that awesome? This is bizarre theology for first century pagans. That God, a deity, would enter in to your life. His hair being white is a picture of his perfection, his holiness, his sinlessness. His eyes blazing fire is that he can see everything. He can look right through you. He knows every deception. No lie is safe with him. He sees every person. He sees perfectly. So those people who always seem to get away with things and you know that everybody's missing what they're doing, Jesus is not missing it. Right? The times where you did what was right and nobody gave you any credit and you paid a harsh price for doing what was right, Jesus saw it because he sees it. His feet are a symbol of his judgment and his power. His voice being the thundering waters is a symbol that his words override all other words, even those of Caesar, even those of a president, even those of the influencers, even those of celebrities. Jesus' words are the words, right? And a sword coming out of his mouth a little weird picture there. But it seems that to tell us that these are his words to the churches that we are about to study. In fact, it references it again in some of the churches that there is a double-edged sword coming out of his mouth. Why a sword? Well, the author of Hebrews tells us that the Scripture is like a sword that penetrates, that gets down to the heart of it, that finally discerns and separates what's going on inside of us, that takes motivations apart and, and subtleties apart and, and gives us clarity and truth. Later in this book, the sword from his mouth is in judgment. And Jesus is about to issue judgments about these churches and about the world. So what John is saying and what Jesus is saying in this vision to John is, right now it looks like the emperor's got all the cards. He does not. Believer, what's got you unsettled? What right now is troubling your soul? Is it that people seem to be in charge? 
How could we possibly get fooled into thinking that? There is one who reigns, and it's not someone in political power. It's not some celebrity. It, for John and his people, it's not an emperor. His will will not prevail. It is Jesus who has the final word. It is Jesus' word that will stand. And one day, every single one of us will stand in front of him. Amen. One day, you will stand in front of Jesus, and so will everybody else. Will it be a time of joy and rejoicing? Or will it be a time of fear and dread? It depends on whether you know him. It depends on whether he is your savior or not. So today, I guess this is the vision that God gives to John in a moment of deep trouble and suffering in his life. As we look at this vision of Jesus, I wonder what changes about what we think of him. What gets corrected? What gets renewed? What gets refreshed inside of us? You're going to pray. We're going to pray in a second. We're going to talk to Jesus. What changes about how we talk to Jesus when we see him like this? What changes about whether we talk to Jesus when we see him? What shifts in our view of what's happening in our lives, how we define what's happening in our lives, whether it's worth suffering or not? Who has our loyalty? Who is our leader? Can we be people of enduring hope and steadfast, steadfast patience like John and these churches? Or are we just so ready to buckle under our trials that we never really see Jesus for who he is? We never see how he loves us, how he is our powerful savior and redeemer. Maybe we saw it in the past and one day we'll see it, but we're struggling to see it right now. People of God, I challenge you this week, see Jesus. Remind yourself how great he is that his word will be final, that he sees and knows, that you can endure, and that any pain or any test is only for a short time because we belong to the kingdom. And right now we get to live like our God reigns, like the king is faithful, and our trust is not misplaced to believe that he has us, that he cares about us, that he's watching over us, and that his purpose in our lives is good. We are people of a kingdom, and that kingdom is a kingdom of hope, and joy, and peace, and love. Will we live like that? We only will if we see Jesus.